Amen. Well, we're going to be back. We're back in the Gospel of Mark uh, this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, uh, we're going to cover verses 35 to 44. I titled this morning's message, Beware of Half-Truths and Hypocrisy. Last week's message, actually a couple weeks ago now, the message title was The Opposition Intensifies. Jesus was up on that mount. Uh, Now it's Tuesday. He's having uh, different dialogues with these religious leaders. The opposition was beginning to grow more and more intense as each day, really, and probably as each moment passed. Jesus is in this last week of His life here on earth. He's just days away from the cross. There's multitudes of people that were gathered there in Jerusalem for the annual feast. Passover was coming. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost, which would be 50 days after the resurrection. They were there. There was an excitement in the city. People were anticipating a time of celebration of these feasts. They did this every year. They were being obedient even to the the law of God. This Passion Week started with our Lord riding into Jerusalem as King of the Jews. And it's going to end this Passion Week with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The day of the week is still Tuesday, just two days before the cross. And the disciples and Jesus are up on that Temple Mount. They're up there again. They would leave each evening and then He would come back for another day. The day of opposition with these religious leaders, it was pretty intense on that Tuesday. We finished last week in chapter 10, verse 28, uh, with one of the scribes. These were the, the, what we call the experts in the law. They knew the law of God. They knew what the Word of God said. They came to Jesus with a a very important question. And that question was, which is the first commandment of all? A great question. It's one scribe that heard Jesus having these dialogues with these religious leaders. And the question on his mind was, Which is the first commandment of all? Look at verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered well, he asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He was quoting from Deuteronomy 
chapter 6. This is the first commandment. The second is like it, Jesus says to him. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Take note of that, church. No greater commandment than these. To love the Lord God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength is what we're all called to do. To give it all to the Lord, to everything within you. To love God in that way. And you see, we have something within inside of us that doesn't always allow us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you know what that is? It's our flesh. It's ourself. But to even to say to love your neighbor as yourself, that even pushes it to another level. To love somebody like you love yourself. Jesus here putting these two commandments together that had never been done in the ears of a scribe. To join these two commandments together was grabbing their attention. It grabbed this this scribe's attention in the moment. And so the scribe says to Jesus, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. This scribe that was standing there, I think was a little bit taken back with what our Lord's response was. He went on to say, and to love Him with all of our heart and all of our understanding, with all of our soul and with all of our strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, He says to Jesus. And when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God, But after that, no one dared to question Jesus any further. They heard His wisdom. They heard how He approached each encounter. And no one wanted to approach Him with any more. We're now two days from the cross. Jesus is going to display to this world one of the greatest acts of love that this world has ever seen. This act of love was so great, it it was even hard to be able to grasp. Have you ever found that to, to be true? How hard it is to grasp how great God's love is towards you. The depth of His love for you. It's hard to wrap our head around. It's hard to really grab hold of it. Because we see so often how our love wanes under so many circumstances. But His love doesn't. It doesn't change. It's consistent. It's always the same. The Apostle John, he was known as that Apostle of love. He was the beloved Apostle. He was the one who wrote more about love in the Word of God than any of the other apostles. I think the Apostle John had a pretty good understanding 
of the love of God. He wrote one of the the greatest verses in the Bible. Do you know what the greatest verse in all of the Bible is? Uh, By my calculations, by my opinion, it's John 3.16, and I think most of us have it memorized. It has to be the greatest verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Do you agree with that? John 3.16. The second, by my opinion anyway, most important verse in the Bible. You've heard me say this before, but if you haven't, it's 1 John 3.16. Do you have that one memorized? By this we know love. Not that uh, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought also to lay down our life for one another. You see, if you want to know how great God's love is, all you have to do is look to the cross. Look to Jesus on the cross, and you will get a glimpse, a greater glimpse of His love for you. He laid down His life for you. It was action. It wasn't just words. He didn't just tell us from heaven, hey, I love you all. He came to this earth. He came as God, man. He went to the cross. He gave it all up for you and I because of His great love for you. And then He says, and you ought also to lay down your life for one another. Sounds like those two greatest commandments, doesn't it? But let me ask you this morning, do you feel like you have a good understanding personally of this unconditional, sacrificial, everlasting, merciful, gracious, unchanging, faithful, steadfast, persistent, compassionate love of God? And I could add to that. Do you feel like you have a great understanding of those things? If I asked you the question, if I said, can you show me from the Bible? Can you take me to the Scriptures that you know that would tell me everything you can about the love of God? Would you have verses that you would take me to? Would you have portions of Scripture that you would turn to in your Bible that you've memorized? That you've taken to heart about the love of God? You see, it's important for us to understand that His love is not like a love that we often receive in these human bodies from other people. This love that God has for you is supernatural love unconditional and sacrificial towards you and I. It's what we're called to do for one another. His love has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit if you know Him as Lord and Savior. You have that supernatural love dwelling and living inside of you. I found just 16... Verses And by the way, I got kind of caught up into this. So we're not quite in our text yet. But 
Let me share with you a few verses concerning the love of God. In Matthew 6.24, we read in this verse that God must be our first love. No man can serve two masters, we're told, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, God doesn't want just a portion of our heart. He wants all of our heart. Every bit of our heart. And we can't really serve two things. And if we try, we're only giving God a piece of it. We're not giving Him our all. And God desires a heart that is full of love towards Him. We are also called to love God in Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Same verse we read out of Mark's Gospel. To do that with all your heart. To do that with all your soul. I want you to think of those words. Your heart, your soul, and your mind. Those three things, they, that, that's you. Everything within you. We're called to love God. We're also told that God loves you and cares for you. In Matthew 6.25 we read, Therefore I say to you, and I think that you'll, with this one here, this will be a big one for us this morning. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubic to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God loves you. God cares about your life. He cares about the details of your life. The things that you want to worry about. The things that, that sometimes grip us with anxiety. God loves you and cares for you. Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. That's what we're called to do. God wants every one of you to know of His great love. We read in John 17.23, He says, I and them and you and me that you may be perfect and one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus speaking in that relationship that he has with the Father. Think of God the Father and the Son and the love relationship that was there between them is the kind of love relationship that God desires to have with you and I. That 
love relationship without hypocrisy. Did you know that God loves even those who hate Him? In Matthew 5.43 we read, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies, but bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? You see, we're called to be different. We have this supernatural love dwelling inside of us. Put your head around that. That we're called to even love those who don't love us. That's the kind of love that God has for you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. God seeks out in His love those who are alienated from Him. Maybe some of us have been there. Maybe you have loved ones that are there now. They're away. They're alienated from Him. In Luke 15, you can read the parable of the lost sheep. You can also read the parable of the lost coin. You can read in that same chapter the parable of the lost son. You notice that all three of these things have to do, these parables have to do with those things that are lost. And Jesus gave these parables to show us that He goes after the one who was lost. Let it bring hope to you. If you've got people that are wayward, that are off, that don't know that you're praying for, God loves them. That's the kind of love that God has for them. We just simply need to pray. Be vessels that God can use. You love God when you obey Him. Did you know that? You're loving God when you obey Him. In John 14.21, He who has My commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves Me. And He who loves Me will be loved by My Father, and I will love Him and manifest Myself to Him. There's a lot to be said about love. All the way through Scripture, I mean, the, the, script, the, the Bible is full of giving us an understanding of the love of God. God the Father loves Jesus His Son. In John 5.24, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these. They are they, that you may marvel. Also, Jesus Himself loves the Father. Do you see the relationship? The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. In John 14.31, But the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave Me commandment, so I do. That's our Lord. Jesus being obedient to the will of the Father. That love relationship that He had with the Lord. 
with the Father. I've got more, but we don't have enough time. So I'm going to let that go, but I want to encourage you to look through the Word of God. Look at every time you see the word love, and you're going to find it a lot of times. And ask the Lord to show you something deeper about God's love for you. Something deeper about the relationship that He desires to have with you. The kind of love that we find in the Word of God is that same love that lives and dwells inside of you. Now let's look at our text. At verse 35, I knew I was going to get caught up into this. Jesus, in the remainder of this chapter, is going to warn the people about these religious leaders. Look at verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Jesus went from these encounters with the the religious leaders to now an occasion on that same day where he's now beginning to teach the crowds of people that came around him. And Jesus in his teaching was going to answer this question that was being taught by the religious leaders of their day. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. You see, the scribes or these religious leaders, these teachers of the law, these interpreters of the law, they believed and taught the people that the Messiah would be in a a lineal, lineal descent of King David. They thought that he was going to pass down from King David. And you know what? They were right. He would come through the line of King David. We know that as Christians. But you know what? That was only half the truth. They didn't have the whole truth. Yes, he would come through the line of David. And that we know to be true. But he was much more than just a man that would come through the lineage of David. We as Christians get confronted all the time with what we believe. If you ever open up your mouth for Christ, you're going to find that you're going to get confronted with what you believe. Some people are going to give you truth. Some people are going to give you a half-truth. Some people are going to only tell you half the story. And we have to, as Christians, be able to decipher what's truth and what's error. But you know, a half-truth is no better than a whole lie. You can't just give part of the truth to a person to be saved. You have to give them the whole truth of the Gospel. Jesus says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. He's wanting to answer that question to that crowd of people that had gathered around him. He's wanting to clear up a misconception that they may have had in their mind about the Messiah and who he was. You see, Jesus 
was concerned that these religious leaders were using truth, but not whole truth to the people. We see that today. As a matter of fact, there are many Christians that kind of get confused. They get confused by the cults. They get confused by teachers that are out there that are bringing forth things that are not the whole truth. They're just half-truths. They're part of truth. And it happens all the time. Many of you have had maybe spoken with Jehovah's Witnesses. They use the same kind of language we do. Why? Because it's in the Bible. But they have a different understanding of who Jesus is. It's what Jesus was clearing up on that day in concern, concerning His Son, or concerning Jesus, the Messiah. These Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus was a created being. I don't know if you knew that. They believe that Jehovah God created Jesus Christ as a creation of His to be the ransom sacrifice for the sins of the world. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness, is Jesus the Son of God? Yes, He is. Why would they say? Well, because the Bible says so. He's the Son of God. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness, is Jesus Jehovah? No. He's not Jehovah. He's the Son of God. He is, in a sense, a little God, created by Jehovah God to be the ransom sacrifice for the sins of the world. Partly true and partly false. The Mormons, they teach that Jesus is the Son of God. That's true, isn't it? But He was also once a man like you and I. He was the spirit brother of Lucifer. That's false. And He became a God just like you can become a God also. That's what Mormonism teaches. That's false. But they mix truth and error. Truth and false together. Islam. It teaches that Jesus was a prophet. No more than a prophet. But you know what? That's true. Because you see, Jesus came as prophet. He came as king. He came as priest. That's true. But He's more than a prophet. He was the Son of God. He was God Himself. God in flesh. They deny that Jesus was God. They deny that He is equal with Allah. And so, truth and false within religions. I, I like when I have encounters with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons because you know one of the ways you can kind of get down to the nitty-gritty with them is just to begin to talk to them about the Jesus that they're bringing to your door. The Jesus that, that, you, are, uh, that you believe in and the Jesus that they believe in. Did you know that there are uh, different kinds of Jesus that people speak about? But the Jesus that we know of Scripture is different than the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. Different than the Mormon Jesus. Different than the Jesus of Islam. It's a different Jesus. 
And what I like to do is just say, you know what? I, I know there's the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. And after you've said that to them about two or three times, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, they'll usually get frustrated with you and say, why do you keep calling him the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? And my simple answer to that is because he's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the same Jesus. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you, you may well put up with it. You see, there is many that will come with a different Jesus. These religious leaders were teaching only a half-truth to God's people. We need to be aware and beware of the various cults that are out there. Do you know that there's a lot of Christians that have been swayed into thinking, well, I thought they were the same. They, they had all the same language. They said the same things, but they don't even know their Bibles well enough to know that it's different. We need to be careful about the prosperity preachers that are out there. Just have to turn on your TV and watch. I don't advise it, but you'd have to turn it on and watch. You know, the, the legalistic preachers that are out there. There's a lot of them. You have to beware of the, the prosperity preachers, the legalistic preachers. You've got to be careful about the cults. You need to be careful about those that say that it's a combination of faith and works, how you're saved. There's all these different types of versions and it's truth and half-truth. And it's enough to send a person to hell. Jesus went on to teach the people in verse 36. He says, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, notice that King David by the Holy Spirit said this in Psalm. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies, your footstool. Jesus was telling the people on the mount that day, these religious leaders that were there and, and, and teaching the people this half-truth, something that Jesus felt it was necessary to address the people, that Jesus was more than just a descendant of King David, that He was actually the Son of God, that He was God in flesh, that He was fully man, but He was also fully God. That's what Jesus wanted to teach the people. Jesus says to them, how could David say in Psalm 110 verse 1 that the Messiah was His Lord if He was only His Son? How could David be calling Him Lord? If he was his son, it couldn't be. And that was the point that Jesus was making. In verse 37, Therefore David himself 
calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Jesus says. How could the Messiah be David's son and his Lord at the same time? It can't be. These religious leaders were only believing and teaching a half-truth. I remember one time speaking with a Jehovah's Witness. As I shared the gospel with this woman, she told me that she had some Jehovah's Witnesses coming over to her house and began to have Bible studies with, with them. And I said, can I tell you something about what they believe? And I began to tell her some of the truths about what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. She said, they don't believe that. I said, well, how how do you know that? Well, I was raised going to church. What kind of church did you go? I was raised in in a Baptist church growing up my whole life. But I had these these Jehovah's Witnesses come over and start talking to me at my door, and they didn't sound any different than what I always believed. And so then she goes, I said, well, let let me challenge you to do something. Go and talk to them and ask them these questions. And I gave her some questions to ask. And the following week, I went and followed up with her. Went to her, knocked on her door. And and said, I'm just checking to see if you were able to to find out the answer to those questions. She goes, oh, I found out. I've left that and I'm back at the, the church. And I, man, I was just praising God. I go, man, there we just almost, you know, here's one person just being deceived with this half truth. They sound the same, but they're not. Jesus, in verse 38, he went on then to, to, to warn them. And it, would, it, go, it finishes in verse 37, excuse me, and the common people. We're told they heard him gladly. The common people. Or the great number of people that were standing there in the midst of Jesus at that moment. They heard him gladly. It made sense to them what Jesus had just said. And then in verse 38, then Jesus says to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes, who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feast. Beware, Christians, of those that are around you. Beware of those different groups that are out there that would tell you things that are not scriptural. Beware when you see those people being lifted up and doing their thing for themselves. Beware of that. You see, the word beware means to look. The word beware here means to perceive something. It means to discern with your eye, to have an understanding of something, to take heed to something, is what Jesus is telling these people that were listening. He says, Beware of them. It's a warning that Jesus is giving. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, speaking to Christians, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. How do you test the spirits? 
the Word of God? How do you test when something false comes your way? Or some half-truth comes your way? How do you test it? You test it with the Word of God. So we need to know the Word of God. We need to know our Bibles well. John says, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Listen to this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Very simple, isn't it? Very clear. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Christians, if you just apply yourself to knowing God's Word, if you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you, and you know what? I'm not going to move in my understanding until God shows me, confirms to me, shows me from the Word of God that what that person is saying is true. You'll be all right. Just show me in the Word of God and I'll believe it. If I don't see it in the Word of God, if you can't show me from the Word of God, I reject it. Until God shows me, I reject it. Jesus says to those who are religious, those that had the long robes, those that appeared to be very religious up on that temple mount that day, you know, these long robes, they were colorful robes. They, they stood out from the other people. You see, all the other people, the common people, they just had your, your plain clothes on. And, and here's these religious leaders that had the robes. They looked very distinguished from the rest of the people. Sounds like a lot of religious preachers and teachers today putting themselves in that place where they are maybe really making show. They love the greetings. These religious leaders, they love the popularity. They love the titles, you know, like pastor. You know, they, they, they love those titles when people would address them. Like an elder, like a deacon. You know, can you feel your flesh if you've ever been in one of those positions? And somebody says, hey, pastor. Oh, you're one of the elders. Yes, I am. You know, you're, uh, you know your flesh likes titles. And, and, and that's what these religious leaders of Israel were doing. They loved the robes. They loved the greetings. If you were to have to say to one of the, those religious leaders on that temple mount, if you were to, to say, hey servant, hey slave, I, I don't think it would have went over very well. 
That's not the kind of title that they would wanted to hear. They loved the greetings from the people. We need to beware of that, even in our day. They loved the best seats in the synagogues. You see, these are all pictures of that religious person. I remember going on a missions trip to Nigeria. And I remember going into the church where we were teaching from. We actually went into a number of different churches. And as their custom was, they would have these large seats that were up on the stage. And they invited myself and and, uh, Pastor Kevin and... and, uh, they asked us to come up and to sit in these chairs where we face the people. Some of them are pretty elaborate, you know, big armchairs, you know, man, you, you'd feel important sitting in that. And I remember, well, we both did, we say, you know what, we just, we want to sit down with the people. Is that okay? We don't want to sit up in the chairs, you know, up, up in these chairs. We'd like to sit down with the rest of the people. And they almost were scratching their head like, what? I mean, this is what we do here. We, we sit in these chairs and we, you know, and you know what, if it's in the right heart, okay. But if your flesh likes that, sitting in front of people, the best seats in the synagogue is what they liked. Sitting in those best places that people could see. And they, they like the best places we're told here in our text. They, the best places at the feasts also. They, they had these sections that were sectioned off where the religious leaders would sit. I remember years ago, I was invited to come down and sit on the main stage at the Harvest Crusade, if you know what that is. A huge crusade that that goes on in California. I was invited to go down and to to sit with a a number of other people in these chairs that were set up on the stage. Thousands of people out in the stadium. I remember walking down onto that saying, man, this is cool, man. Wow. Sitting on the stage at the Harvest Crusade. But that's all I did. I didn't do anything else. Just go and sit on the stage. You know, but there's something in your flesh that goes, I kind of like that. You know, sitting on the stage. And that's what these religious leaders loved. They loved that distinction. That's not what a leader should be like. That's not not a man of God or a woman of God that, that wants to take that attention to self. Outwardly, they appeared very religious to the people. I mean, if you're going to spot out a, somebody that's doing all right, hey, that, look at that. And there, there you go right here. Look at them. And Jesus saw right through it. And here He is warning the common people the people that were open to hear, warning them about that. Jesus hit it right on the head in Matthew chapter 23. 
He pronounced woes against these religious leaders. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is, don't you? A hypocrite is an actor. It's somebody that's playing the part. And here's Jesus saying to these scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. And then he says it again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs. You know what that is. It's a a grave. You're like a whitewashed tomb, which indeed appears beautifully, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Jesus nailed them. Those are hard words, aren't they? Can you imagine as that was going into their ears? Can you see why they were a little bit displeased with Jesus? And not only that, but Jesus says to the common people as He was teaching them, these religious leaders in verse 40, they devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hated it in these religious leaders' lives. He hates hypocrisy in our lives. And you know what? We all have hypocrisy at times. It's there. It's it's part of our flesh that we have to contend with. But here's these religious leaders that Jesus says they devour widows' houses. They look for ways, in other words, to rob the widows, the vulnerable. They, 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 they seek to ways that they might take some of their property from them, some of their livelihood. And you know what? That happens. You know how many widows and you know how many people on TV have been spurred on to give, you can know, have it all. I mean, hey, I'm giving it to the work of the Lord. And, they're, and, they're, and they're, they're by these preachers, by these religious people that seek to, to make a profit off the vulnerable. They look for ways to rob people. They tell you, they say, you know what, it's for the work of the Lord. You know, give big. You know, it's for the work of God. It's for His kingdom. 
You know, you got boats, you got houses, you know, sell them. It's for the kingdom. Jesus says of these religious leaders, He says these will receive greater condemnation. Place of accountability. If somebody speaks on behalf of God as I'm speaking here, greater accountability before the Lord. You teach people, you tell people you're telling them truth, then you need to show it in the Word of God. You need to, you need to back up what you say with the Word of God. That's important for all of us to know. Because there's going to be a greater condemnation to those that put themselves in that position. Jesus said that to the common people that were standing there. There's going to be a greater condemnation for those religious leaders that are giving you a half-truth, that are taking advantage of you, that are doing it for their own pride. And because of their hypocrisy, they will stand in greater condemnation. We're also told that Jesus saw something else that day in verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and He saw how the people... Luke tells us He saw the rich on the Temple Mount that day. They were coming in, they were putting money into the treasury. It was like a box. It was a place like what we have at the back there. You, know, you could put your money into the treasury. Into the, into the tithe box. And many who were rich were told they put much in. Then one poor widow came and she threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. Just two little mites. This was going to be a lesson for the disciples. Jesus wanted to teach His men, His disciples, a lesson in this. Look at what it says in verse 43. So He called His disciples to Himself, and He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. To love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Everything within her. She loved her God. And she was willing to give up her whole livelihood. What a contrast between these religious leaders that were wanting to take advantage of the widows. And here's this woman coming and giving her all. A contrast between the rich and those that have very little. And how God's perspective is towards both of them. You see, there's people today to think that if they give 10%, if they tithe from their, their income, that's all God requires. 
You know, give, give 10% and God's satisfied. I'm not under any obligation to do any more than that. But there's a problem with that thinking. You see, there are some that have much. We call them rich. By the standard of most people. And to give 10%, wouldn't cost them much. It wouldn't really bring any hardship at all. You see, the problem with money is that when we earn our money, we think it's ours. And, and I believe that the Bible teaches that all of our substance, everything we have, is God's. It's all His. You may have your name on your bank account, your checking and savings account, your wife's name on there, but it's God's. His name really is on the checking account, the bank account. It's all His. And He simply is giving you a paycheck every week and says, now I want you to be a good steward of my money. That's how I believe we should see it. It's not mine and what I want. If I, as long as I give that 10%, I satisfy God. As a matter of fact, God sometimes requires more of that. Here's this widow, or this woman, giving all that she had to the Lord. What an example of a heart that was wanting to, to give it all to God. Jesus told His disciples this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. More than all of them. Because He sees her heart. Because He sees our hearts. She gave from all that she had. Not from her abundance, but from what little she had in her poverty, she gave it all. You see, the Lord looks at that and you know what? And it just shows you that God is not concerned. He doesn't need our money. If you don't give unto God, if you don't give of your substance to God, you're the one that will get robbed. You're the one that's going to get ripped off. Because you know, you're not giving back to God. And I believe there's a scriptural basis for us to give. So you need to ask yourself the question, am I robbing from God? Am I holding back what God has given me and I'm not giving anything back to the Lord? You see, there's some Christians that don't even give. They don't give at all. And in their mind, they, they think, well, you know, the tithe, you know, that's, a, that's an Old Testament thing. That's just Old Testament. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. And we all know what that, I think we do, what that word cheerful means, a, a hilarious giver. Kind of like, let me get back to that box, man. I want to, Lord, thank you for what you have done for me. Lord, you have blessed me in so many ways. And Lord, I can't help, but I, I'm just going to give back to you. You know, as some of us might, you know, we, feel, we start putting, oh man, that hurt. Just dropping something in. Don't worry, you know, because in the bottom of that thing, we put padding in there. So if you drop coins in there, you won't hear it. 
Just had to say that. But Christians sometimes, they get stretched, don't they? I've been stretched in my Christian walk. Kathy, we've, we've been stretched. You're trying to make the bills, trying to do, you know. And, and by the way, you know, if you only have a little bit, why give it? You're not going to do anything anyway. Not according to Jesus. Two mites, given more than all the rest. Oh, God, store your treasure in heaven. She's storing it up, wasn't she? The rest given out of a wrong motive? Oh, God, you should have just kept it. Just keep it and don't give until your heart is right. You see, God is always concerned with the heart first. And we only receive the blessings from the Lord in our giving when it's done out of a right heart. This widow's devotion to the Lord was in contrast to these religious leaders. I know that I was actually raised in a, a church growing up where it was more common to pass a, an offering plate. You ever been in one of those churches? Not saying a bad thing. That's fine. You use an offering plate, you know, a nice little silver plate, pass it through the aisle and everyone gets, but if you've ever been in that setting, have you ever noticed how your eyes want to look over at the plate when you're the person next to you? Kind of like looking over just to see what they drop in? That's, a, that's flesh, isn't it? We're concerned with those things. We see those things. And Jesus sees it too. That's why I like the old tie buck. You know, you just hunker around it and just throw it in through the top. Nobody even sees. Or at least a bag, but... I love Malachi 3.10. I've, I've shared it before. Maybe one time, maybe twice in ten years as a church. Those of you that have been a part of this church for any length of time know that I have only talked about giving and tithing and giving of your substance back to the Lord, not even this many times. Maybe that's my error. But I do believe that God wants us to give. We're in a place as a church even right now with this COVID thing. We need to, to ask God, God, what's my responsibility to Calvary Chapel Fellowship that I'm calling my home church? And God, it's your money. And what do you want me to do with it? And I, and I would say to all of us, you know what? Some of us need to put God to the test. If you've got a lot of bills, maybe you've been unwise in your, in your cranking up you know, the bills or whatever. But God, would you help me to step out in faith, to trust you? And, and Malachi 3.10 says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that, you, that there may be food in my house. And try me. And this is what I like. And try me. That me is capitalized, by the way. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. That... Put God to the test. See if God won't turn around and bless you 
in your finances, even, and I'm not talking about health and wealth. I'm just talking about faithfully giving to the Lord that God won't help you in sorting out your bills so that you can get to that place where you can give back to the Lord. One person put it this way, Paul never said that we must tithe, but tithing can serve us as a basic principle to, uh, for, uh, pro, uh, for proportionate giving. For some who are beginning, it might be a target plan forward. For some, it might be the starting point. You see, the 10% can be a starting point for some people. You know, it's something to shoot for. But I think that we all need to ask the Lord to search our hearts and say, Lord, what's my part in giving even in this church? That's enough on that now. We're going to leave into the next chapter next week. I'm excited about this. Chapter 13 tells us that on that Tuesday that Jesus left the Temple Mount in verse 1 of 13. And as they were walking along, Jesus begins to teach His disciples some truths about future things to come. It's the equivalent of Matthew chapter 24. But we're going to be looking at some future events that I believe that are on the horizon. When's the horizon? Not calling a date out. I'm just saying they're on the horizon. We're to be watching, to be looking, to be ready as a Christian. And so read ahead. In Mark chapter 13, that whole chapter, He's going to talk about the the events leading up to the tribulation, the tribulation period, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all hopefully waiting for and anticipating the Lord's return. That's when it's all going to be summed up. You know, all this that we do right now, it's all going to be summed up in that day. So it's time. Okay, now it's time. That's it. No more. You know, I don't know that there'll be a tithe box in heaven. You know, I mean, it's just, that's, that's here and now. You know, we got to run the lights. We do, you know, and it costs money. We won't be concerned with that in heaven. We're not going to be running our tithes, you know. It's going to be glorious. Looking forward to it. Psalm 125 um, says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. And Father, we just thank You for Your protection upon our lives. Lord, You love us unconditionally, sacrificially. You gave it all up so that we might live. And Lord, You protect us. You keep us. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. Lord, thank You for Your great love. 
Lord, teach us Your love. Lord, let Your love flow out of our lives this week. Give us opportunity, Lord, to show that love to this world. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.